started, and we will continue reading 1 Kings, picking up in verse 32. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, who have Saul and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, and blow the horn, and say, Long live King Solomon! Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen! May the Lord God of my lord the king say so too. As the Lord has been with my lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and took him to Gihon. Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating, And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, Why is the city in such a noisy uproar? While he was still speaking, there came Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest. And Adonijah said to him, Come in, for you are a prominent man, and bring good news. Then Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, No, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's own mule. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they've gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. And Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord the king, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. Then the king bowed himself on his bed. Also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day, while my eyes see it. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose and each one went his way. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar 
And it was told Solomon, saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today, swear today to me that I will he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and your your authorized testimony of events long ago that display to us great things about who you are uh, and about how you act. And we pray that we would uh, see beyond simple historic fact and see your hand at work in marvelous ways and be encouraged, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. As we uh, start looking at First Kings, uh, we we can I hope find encouragement in seeing providence at work. Uh, sometimes when we just think uh, dryly of a doctrine, uh, we can assent to it and and not understand how wonderful it is. So we might we might assent to the doctrine of God's providential control over all things. Uh, and not realize what a good thing that is for our own lives in a fallen world until we look at a situation like this and see how even wicked things are used by God's providence to bring about his will and good things for his kingdom. Um, when we just sang a moment ago about man's, uh, man's plans failing, and God prevailing. That, that would be a great way to think about 1 Kings chapter, well, really chapters 1 and 2, particularly chapter 1 this evening. Uh, we see here man with schemes and God bringing better things about. Um, as with every historic book, the, the simple way to think through what's going on is to read Psalm 2 and to reflect on the nations raging, even the nation of Israel, even the church sometimes, raging against God in our sin and unbelief, and yet God bringing even this to bear in his good plan. So as we look at 1 Kings, we find David sick and in bed. I'm not going to deal with questions of verses 1 through 4 this week. We can come back to that when we come to Abishag again uh, later, maybe. But we want to focus here on the result. David, David in verses 1 through 4 is presented as really sick and old. He's so sick he needs a heater uh, to, to stay alive. And uh, apparently all his wives were older and not as hot as they used to be temperature-wise. And so they got this young woman. I, I, don't, think, I don't think we are to draw that this is an ethically good thing from the text. Uh, The text doesn't really comment on that. It's a historic fact that David's advisors did this. It is also a historic fact here 
that whether it was right or wrong, David at least refused to do anything inappropriate uh, beyond having her in his bed, whether that was appropriate or not. Uh, But the point of all of that is to set us up for Adonijah. When you look at your father and he's so old he can't keep warm, and he's so old he's decrepit and can't get out of bed, then you might say the end is near. And so Adonijah here sees an opportunity. He sees an opportunity to uh, take the throne uh, without having to commit uh, patricide, but, um, but seeking to uh, get a jump start and take, uh, take the throne. And other people jump around him. This whole chapter repeats certain names over and over. Didn't you notice? There's two sets of names, and all of them are important names. Both sides have one of the two high priests. This is a rare moment in Israel's history when there were two high priests at the same time and both sides have one of the high priests. Both sides have important military figures. Uh, Joab is obviously very important, but we have here Benaiah, who's the head of the bodyguard of David because he did really amazing things. And uh, I think we also see his faith in, he's the one that speaks up, not the prophet, not the priest. Benaiah jumps in and actually has the gall to say to David, may your son's reign be better than yours. It takes someone who um, understands the faith of David to understand that to David that is a wonderful thing because it relates to God's covenant promises to David's household. And so you have that. You have a, a prophet on one side You don't have the prophet on the other, but you have other important figures and all of the other sons of the king, many of whom probably remember dad and Bathsheba and Uriah. And so Solomon being significantly younger than the other children of David, uh, you can understand why they would all want to throw their hat in, in the older brother's direction. Adonijah is the oldest living son of David at this time. There were three who were older than him. Um, One of them, uh, Ammon, and another one, Absalom, and the third, and I can't remember his name, because he gets mentioned, and then you never hear of him again, and all the commentators say he probably died as a kid. But you can go look it up if you want to. It's in 1 Samuel. Uh, but all of them are dead. Adonijah's the next in line, so he seems like the perfect person to take the throne. Also, if you reflect on 1 Samuel, he seems like the perfect person for the throne because, like Saul before him, he is tall and handsome and a, a beautiful specimen. Uh, the best way that the author here can think of to describe how beautiful he was is to say he was good-looking, he was Absalom's brother, which, which should tell us something about the man, not only physically, but I think also spiritually. He matches Absalom uh, very closely. Um. And on the other side, you have Solomon with, uh, with the other set of people. People, for example, who would be witnesses to the fact that God had chosen Solomon and David had chosen Solomon despite who was oldest. And that's probably why these men are not invited to the party. 
not invited to the, the little uh, band of, of uh, king's men here. Uh, because Nathan, of course, is the very prophet who in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, declared that there would be this son of David who was yet to come from his loins. That language in the Hebrew that connotated the, the one that God's talking about who would reign hasn't been born yet. He's still going to come out of your loins, David. Uh, a weird way of speaking for us. But that, that implies that Solomon would be that one who came after the promise. And, and if that was unclear, 2 Samuel 12, 24-25, God declared again through Nathan the prophet that Solomon is the one by declaring him the one on whom God's favor fell so that he's known as the beloved of the Lord. And not only was Nathan the one that spoke these things, but bear in mind, Benaiah is the top bodyguard, secret service agent in the room when these things are being said. If anyone in Israel overheard what Nathan and David were talking about, it would have been Benaiah. And so he too is left out, as well as the mighty men, which could refer to the entire unit of special ops David men, or it can also be referring to a smaller section of that, which is just the bodyguard. I think that's probably what's in in mind here. It's that elite bodyguard, the best of the best, the guys that Marvel could make a a movie franchise off of. You go and read uh, 1 Chronicles. They're amazing men. And all of them are left out too because they all are loyal to David and they all would have been those who would have heard the promises made about Solomon. So you have these, th- this division among the best of the land and two kings set to go to the throne. Here's the astonishing thing. If David had just died and no one had laid claim to the throne before David died, how do you think from an earthly perspective this would have gone down? It it would have been very bloody. On the one hand, you have uh, people loyal to God and to his word and to his promises, so they're not going to back down from Solomon's side. On the other hand, you have an Absalom-like king who has a ruthless, murderous general on his side. It, It wouldn't have ended well. But that's the amazing thing. Here is this, uh, this action on Adonijah's part, his evil plans, and they are the very plans which ensure Solomon's public and bloodless ascension to the throne. That's astonishing. And it's especially important because remember what is needed in David's child who takes the throne David wanted to build a temple, a house for God. And God said, you have blood on your hands. But your son, who will not be a man of war, will take the throne and build me my house. And so the very evil actions of man here propel events forward in such a way that there is no significant blood in this transition. 
Here's Adonijah not waiting for David to die and taking Absalom-like measures. Look at verse 5. And here, as you look at verse 5, some words from 2 Samuel 15. Compare. Compare the two. 2 Samuel 15.1 Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. It's the same thing, isn't it? God wants us to see that Adonijah, what kind of king will he be? Just like Absalom. If you want to see the wickedness, the perversion, and the blood, look at Absalom. Go back and read 2 Samuel, and then you'll know what this type of man would be as king. Uh, Apparently, he was doing that for a while. Going around, the language seems to imply everyone in Judah knows this is going on. Everyone has seen what he's doing and understands that he's claiming the kingship. Uh, And either David is clueless because of his old age, or, or... it might be one of those moments where David's, one of his great weaknesses is favoritism, isn't it? Joab commits murder. What does David do? He curses him. And next week we'll see, he tells Solomon to do something about it. His son Ammon commits rape to, to his own daughter. What does David do? Nothing. Absalom takes the law into his own hands. David gets mad. But then what does he do? Nothing. So it could be that David actually is aware that Adonijah is going around doing this and he's not doing anything about it. Or it could be he's old and hasn't really registered what's going on. But it's not a good sign. Now, Adonijah takes it to the next level. He's been doing this publicly. Now they have the event. They're going to have this party. Maybe it lasted a couple of days. And at the end of it, they would move from the south end of the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem as a conquering conquering king in his chariot with horses and men of war. And there he would be anointed. That's the plan. It was a a common practice of uh, kind of a pre-celebration with your elite friends before the event takes place. And because of this, because of this, the transition is bloodless. Here comes, here comes Nathan the prophet. And here comes Bathsheba. And they present the case to David. In fact, I love that Bathsheba not only reminds him what he promised, but then almost as if to say, and if you're going back on the promise, realize what you're doing because Bathsheba says, in essence, if Adonijah is the next king, Solomon and I will be killed as traitors. She, in essence, says that. Verse 21, when this happens, when my lord the king rests with his fathers, I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. He's going to kill us. So if you've changed your mind, you need to at least do something to protect us is almost the challenge she's doing. And Nathan Nathan pulls that wonderful trick of waiting and coming right in. Uh, it, it's a wonderful technique to instill in people the urgency. And so David takes action. Look at what David does. David sends them to this location. And uh, if you were to look at a map, 
and the map had the right old names on it, what you would realize is the Kidron Valley, which is outside of Jerusalem, is a long valley that kind of goes in a, in a curve around Mount Zion. And uh, Adonijah and his crew were having their party at the bottom end of it. And David says, I want you to take Solomon to the top part of that valley. And don't do the party first. Get him anointed. Then have the party as you bring him here and sit him on my throne and so forth. Um, And the result is this, that those who are partying at the bottom end of the valley cannot see what is going on. But when it happens, they hear it. David doesn't leave Joab any retaliation moment to get up there and stop it from happening, but he ensures that they all hear the echoes, the deafening echoes through the valley as long live Solomon is sung. David also not only sends his chief bodyguard, his elite bodyguard unit. David leaves himself wide open, doesn't he? He sends his entire bodyguard away with Solomon and makes them his bodyguard from this moment on. And he sends them with a high priest and the chief prophet of Israel. And these two households that were responsible for tabernacle singing, they were the ones that did the music. When you read chief chief uh, choir master or things like that in the Psalms, this would have been from one of these households. And so here you have David sending the choir along, just in case it's not loud enough for them to hear at the end of the valley. We're going to send all of the best singers, and there's going to be this magnificent event. But you see, all of that is spurred by the wicked actions of Adonijah. So the wickedness of man propels and, and ensures in God's plan that Solomon is publicly put forward. And really the thing that terrifies all of Ad, Adonijah's crew is when the report says they've already put him on the throne and then they went and told David about it and David, it's that astonishing, and it could be a little confusing maybe, that astonishing statement that David bowed himself in his bed That's David assuming the posture, not of king anymore, but of subject. He hears the word and he doesn't get upset and go and stop it. He doesn't go in as, uh, well, Shakespeare and Henry IV has Henry IV go in and get mad at his son for sitting on the throne for a minute before he died. But David actually bows himself down and blesses God. And even David's wording is so brilliant so that... My eyes see it. In other words, David himself is the testimony to all Israel. It's an astonishing thing. But all of this, all of this is propelled by Adonijah's actions. Man schemes. And yet God uses that scheme to bring about the good thing. Another thing we find about God's providence in 1 Kings chapter 1 is Adonijah's allies uh, fall along the fault line of God's curses. So, again, we have these two uh, teams, so to speak, these two sides of this discussion, and they each have some of David's most important allies and friends on each side. 
and yet, how does it just naturally break down? We find, for example, Joab. Uh, Joab is a cursed man. Joab had done a number of things, uh, and a number of really good things, including uh, what sounds like a very godly rebuking of David at one point at the end of 2 Samuel. So he's one of those mysterious figures. Was he a believer who just needed a lot more sanctification? Or was he an unbeliever who knew his doctrine fairly well, but wasn't really a believer? We have to be a little agnostic about his end state, I think. But uh, here, Joab is one who has committed murder twice and received God's curse because of it. So he murdered Abner and Amasa, I'm only going to reference Abner here, and we'll reference Amasa next week. But in Abner's case, Abner is, of course, Saul's close relative and chief general. He was the most uh, important man against David. And then he came over to David and said, let me ally with you. I'm sure he had some weird schemes that he had planned uh, for being on top. But David made peace with Abner and Joab... When he found out, he snuck over. He used David's own name to secure an audience with Abner. Oh, I have a message from David. And then he murdered him in cold blood. He did that because in a fair battle, Abner had once turned around and seen Joab's younger brother and said, don't attack me or I'll kill you. And the young man came anyway and he said, turn away or I'm going to kill you. And the man came anyway, and he killed him. So Abner was doing fair fighting. Joab had done that with how many men over the years? If all of their siblings came seeking revenge, he would have been a goner. But the, the hypocrisy is that he couldn't handle it himself. And so he came and killed Abner in cold blood. David actually says, you've brought, you've brought shame on my my house, but my hands are innocent. And yet David doesn't have Joab executed. I think that's a mistake on his part. Um, But uh, he's committed murder with Abner. He committed it again with a man named Amasa. You can go and look those up. And David curses him. Uh, And yet David doesn't put him to death. And so here we have him lining himself up with the one who is going for the kingship in an ungodly fashion, lining himself up, and the result is going to be he's going to bring down God's judgment on his own head. He's not going to sneak in an ally of Solomon and somehow convince Solomon to do what David had done, just let him be. He's actually setting himself up for the curse of God to come to fruition. The other major player here is Abiathar the priest. And if we're uncertain about Joab's salvation, Abiathar, I don't think we should be. Abiathar is a godly man, and he's a godly priest. And yet his house had been cursed by God a a generation or two earlier. That his whole household would be cursed, not because of his sin. uh, Abiathar is a descendant of Eli the priest. And God had proclaimed back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 30 through 36, that he was going to punish Eli's entire house for the sins of 
Phineas and Hophni. Nope, that's the wrong... Uh, uh, well, anyway, it's the other... I think it's another Phineas. Uh, uh, Eli's two sons. And um, they had committed wickedness, and Eli uh, didn't do anything about it. And so God said, well, your house is going to be removed from the priesthood and have to bag food from a different house of priests. Now, the rest of that household had all been destroyed by Saul. There was a city, and Saul had the entire city butchered. But Abiathar escaped, and now he and his son Jonathan serve David. They're godly men, but they're still under God's curse. And by, uh, by going with Abiathar, uh, I'm sorry, Adonijah, Abiathar, by going with Adonijah, is coming along the fault line of curse. He also, by his action, is setting it up so that God's curse and promise would come true regarding him. So, again, this is a second way in which we see man's schemes only serving the purpose of God, as God's curses long ago declared are going to come about because of their choice here. And then finally, in chapter 1, I think we need to see King Solomon's reign getting off to a, a righteous start. God had made uh, promises regarding David's descendants and a specific descendant sitting on his throne. And uh, remember, when you read 2 Samuel 7, there's the messianic sense that's pointing to Christ. But before you get to that eternal throne, he also talks about another specific son of David who will break God's law and be disciplined. So that chapter, God not only speaks of Solomon and all his descendants, but also about Christ. So Solomon there is predicted. And if he follows the Lord and acts in righteousness, God would bless him. And so it's important for us to see, with all the unrighteousness that we're going to see in this book, that at least at the start, he starts off in righteousness on that throne. Solomon uh, Solomon uh, acts first. He, he's righteous in terms of the company he has. Think of all the times he himself in Proverbs will warn about wicked company corrupting. But when we come to Solomon in his youth, who is he surrounded by? He's surrounded by Zadok the priest. Zadok, whose very ne- name means righteousness. Solomon, whose name means peace, the prince of peace, is enthroned by the anointing of a righteous uh, priest. And then, of course, Nathan, who will not be afraid to rebuke him because he rebuked David, who was far greater. And so we, we see him surrounded by righteous people. But then we also see him righteous in how he deals with the, the wicked, uh, we see, we'll see some of this more in, in the next few weeks with Joab and Abiathar. But we see it right here with Adonijah. Adonijah has made this grasp for the throne. He hears that, that Solomon has the throne and he runs into the temple and he grabs the horns of the altar, which uh, you children have the, the altar there with the horns on the coloring page. And uh, when you grabbed those, the idea was Since the blood of the offering comes down right there, no one would dare to execute someone right there where we seek mercy from God, right? It's it's the, it's the, 
closest place of safety. Who would dare? It'd be like standing at the foot of the cross and executing someone as a believer, right? It just would feel weird because this is where God showed you mercy. That's the idea. So here, Adonijah goes in. He's grabbing the horns of the altar. He's seeking uh, asylum uh, from... uh, or sanctuary, rather, from Solomon. And how does Solomon respond? Well, he doesn't respond by having him dragged out and butchered, even though that's surely what Adonijah would have done to him. He rather gives him a pardon. So he's not vindictive. He's righteous in in not being vindictive. That being said, Solomon also is wise. He doesn't give an unconditional pardon. And how important that will be. Solomon doesn't say, you're free no matter what. He says, behave yourself and it will go well with you. And we're, we're going to have to wait a week or two to see if he behaves himself. But Solomon displays both righteousness and wisdom right here at the start. All of this, again, shows how man's plans and schemes can't thwart God's will, but rather actually serve God's will. And that's what we're going to continue looking at in the weeks ahead. So, so what is our application from this then? I, I think it's as simple as remembering. Remember When you are tempted to fear the plots of men, remember that our king sits on God's holy hill enthroned. He will not be overthrown. And he laughs to scorn all the plots of those who would work against him. We live in dark days and discouraging days. But here, surely we see very dark things. And they work for God's plan with the result of the Prince of Peace sitting on the throne without blood on his hands. How much greater the true Prince of Peace whose blood on his hands, it's his own blood for our sake and for our redemption. And he, he will not fail. And so when we look at First Kings, remember when you look at society around you and the attacks that you endure or the things that you fear, remember that all of these things are being used by God to bring about the fulfillment of all that he has promised you for eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.